I am so lucky because, listen, my job is the best job in the world. I work with leaders who choose to work with me. Everybody that I support wants to be there. And then I get to do this. I create content and I talk to people much smarter than I am. And that, you know, really represents and defines uh, and illustrates my guest today, Julie Jungawala. She is the founder of the Institute of the Future of Learning. And I just so love this conversation. It is provocative. She is going to push you to be better. And she's going to push your thinking uh, to a level of possibility and what we need to become in terms of the future of education that, that really you're not going to get it anywhere else. So I'm thrilled to bring her ideas and story to you on the podcast. You know, education is a massive system. And we've heard this before, right? Like, And if you think about it, not that much has changed. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. Right now, I'm not going to add an assertion or judgment on top of that. But if we're serious, and if we look at the way things are changing and moving so fast these days, especially with uh, technology and what it's introduced into the human experience, there's probably a lot of things that we need to unlearn that we learned through our education experience. And are you in a position to make that pivot? Julie will help you think through that pivot that we all need to make. And uh, again, honored to bring this conversation to you. Hey, it's Danny, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after these messages from our show sponsors. Establish your legacy with Harvard Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Learn from Harvard Business and Education School faculty as you develop the frameworks, skills, and knowledge you need to drive change improvement in your learning community. Apply now for our February 2022 cohort at slash Harvard. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX whose virtual PD is equipping thousands of teachers with the skills they need to create engaging, equitable, and rigorous virtual or blended classes. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. Well, hey, Ruckus Makers, we're here with Julie Jungawala, founder of the Institute of the Future of Learning and proud mama to Teddy Bear. And Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Danny. Yes, this is brilliant. I'm so happy to have you here. Really enjoyed connecting with you. And I want you to bring the ruckus maker listening to this this moment. I think you were having some one-on-one coaching around something. And there was this idea that uh, of helping leaders unlearn 
what they learned through the system of education. That's a provocative statement to me. So can you can you dig into that and share more? Sure. So the the school leaders with whom I work, uh, they're in this really interesting position whereby the majority of folks in the education system were successful in the system. And the majority of us, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, uh, late 40s. The system hasn't changed a whole lot since we were at school, yet school leaders find themselves in this crazy, you know, as coined by the U.S. Army College, volatile, uncertain, complex and mm. ambiguous world. And the linear industrial model of change uh, and how we set up and do things and a large creaking bureaucracy uh, we're really in between worlds right now, and school leaders find themselves in the position where I, I best heard this described by a, Graham called Graham, a guy called Graham Lester. Uh, he is the founder of the International Futures Forum in Scotland, and he describes it as being a hospice worker to the old way and a mm. midwife to the new. And I remember reading that sentence in one of his books and thinking, wow, that describes school leadership beautifully. Because you have, there is this caretaking piece. You can't just come in uh, like you might in the corporate world where, you know, maybe you're Chainsaw Al or one of those other, you know, uh, people who were really positioned as these are the turnaround leaders. It's understood you're coming in for three years. You're making a bunch of really tough decisions. Then you leave. And then somebody else comes in who's the healer to help build the culture back up because what happened previously really just destroys culture. Mm -hmm. uh, school leaders have to do both simultaneously and it's an extraordinary leadership task. Yeah. It almost seems impossible when you frame it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, you have to unlearn a whole bunch of stuff uh, that, yeah. you know, works in the old way and doesn't work anymore in the new way. And how right. do you navigate that? Yeah. And we've, we've seen a lot of that, you know, coming through uh, an experience in uh, what we have regarding the pandemic and, you know, old way, new way, you know, I think of uh, things like um, the school day and I, I could share a very quick story. To me, it didn't make sense. You're welcome to weigh in, but uh, in Chicago where I served for years, uh, they extended the school day, right. District wide, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I guess their assertion is is more time for uh, intervention, sort of math or reading would like raise up, you know, the scores and student achievement and that kind of thing. I always push back on it a bit because unless the training and the teacher and the approach changed, more of the same thing doesn't equal better results. <laughs> so like it just seems so simple to me. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. But, you know, like things like longer or shorter school day and that kind of stuff. Uh, and you're talking about this sort of impossible um, position school leaders find themselves in, you know, what, what do they do with that? Mm -hmm. I agree hundred percent. Danny, we're singing off the same hymn book here. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, I remember this is in the early days before I started the IFL, I was trying to work out, you know, where's my place. And I remember interviewing for a fellowship and I'll never forget the interviewer asked me, are you for or against an extended school day? And I said, well, it depends on what right. the day looks like. <laughs> uh, if you're lecturing kids, uh, no, don't do more of that because the research tells us it doesn't work. If you're doing really immersive project-based learning and extended school day enables something to happen that, that, that requires extra time, well, then yes. Uh, but what you're talking about is 
such a, a big challenge writ large, which is the atomizing of school. So mm. are you for or against this? Well, you know, it depends. Are you for or against another one here in Massachusetts, for or against charter schools? Right. It depends. There are phenomenal charter schools and there are charter schools that uh, are really subpar. So it's part of the larger challenge, uh, an opportunity in which we find ourselves. Yeah. Speaking of opportunity, you know, I think uh, you're working on a pretty cool, well, you have a number of projects. We'll dig into to two of them, I hope, uh, during our conversation. But you're working on a second book that I know you're still working on the title. But from what I understand, it's about what it takes to lead lead school change, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, to change the the system of education. So how are you approaching that project? You know, what what's sort of the framework or the thinking behind what you're doing? Sure. So uh, the thinking really crystallized for me during COVID. Mm. My first book uh, is called The Human Side of Changing Education. And in that book, I remember having, as I was writing it, A Dark Night of the Soul, uh, because I unpacked it. This, this is, these are a number of models and frameworks that can be helpful. Here are some case studies of school leaders just like you who have walked this path. And then I reached this moment where I realized, okay, if we have 15,000 school districts in this country, it's unlikely that 15,000 school superintendents and 150,000 school principals are going to decide in the next year or two to do this kind of work. So that being the case, we need everybody at all levels inside and outside the system. If there's an idea in your heart of change you would like to see, then uh, here's a, a framework to help you navigate that path. And that's where I talked about uh, Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and that narrative arc. But during COVID, uh, when the whole world was put on pause, just a couple of things started to crystallize for me. Uh, one was the science of learning and human development and how much we know compared to just a decade ago. Secondly, we are preparing our children for an unknowable future. And the third, it is way past time for systemic equity. Those are three truths that every school leader and every education, every education system should be wrestling with and should take on and should be the lens through which uh, the work is organized, designed, facilitated. And I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and crankier. Uh, It felt like in my first book, I was very invitational in the language. This is going to be a little bit more strident, I think, but yet welcoming. (laughs) This is the leadership task before us. Uh, This is an incredible body of research and evidence that we can stand on. Here are some exemplars of this work in action. Uh, Where is your heart in this work? And uh, when you th- when you think of these three truths, what are the biggest priorities that bubble up for for your school and your district? Uh, I didn't anticipate asking this question. I hope you don't find it weird, but I like going there anyway. I like weird. So go for it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it might be like fairly normal. We'll see. But what I heard there, one of the big differences between the first and um, second book is going from uh, more of an invitational to an assertive. Uh, presence or stance, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, leadership, you know, changes. There's different ways you need to show up. And so mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like in your in your mindset, I don't know, was there was there a catalyst for the shift? And then the second part is just like, how do you prepare then to do the work as you move from invitational to that more, this is what we need to change. And it's urgent. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of things. Uh, COVID is one. I think yeah. we've all had this 
pause. And at the start of COVID, COVID, more like maybe May through the summer and early fall, I hit a wall. Mm. I was completely and totally exhausted. And I've been really good through my 20s and 30s and early 40s. I can push through any level of tiredness. I could always do it and, you know, kind of enjoyed that second lift you would get (laughs) when the adrenaline kick in. And my body just said no. And I've come to understand that there is wisdom that exists below my head as well, below my neck as well as above my neck. And I think I was just put back on my heels uh, and given the chance to reflect on, okay, you're self-employed. You get to design what it is that you do. So that being the case, A, what do you really believe in? And B, are you prepared to push on that? Mm -hmm. And I've done a lot of work over the years. You're being a coach. You go through your own uh, internal work, or at least you you ought to be doing your own internal work. And I remember going to a workshop one time and one of the instructors talked about, you need to be a zero or a 10. So for the people that you're here to help, you should be a 10. They should read your stuff, you know, be in your company, listen to you, think, yeah, this person is for me. I think they can help me. Or a zero, or people are listening to me. To me, they're reading my stuff and thinking, hell no, that, 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 no, <laughs> that, that is not for me. And what he said was people tend to get lost in the land of seven and eight. And I know I can guarantee you an eight. I could probably guarantee you a nine. But that 10, mm, I'm not sure. And that 10 is where I really need to start saying what I really believe and be prepared for folks to push back, disagree and to be OK with that. And maybe part of it is having a three and a half year old son where if I push hard for the next 10 years, hopefully high school will look very different, (laughs) different for him uh, as as it did compared to what it did for me. Right. right. Well, I will recommend, you may have already read this book, but I want to recommend it to the ruckus maker listening too, especially if you feel that your body's telling you, hey, slow down a little bit and that kind of thing. And within our leadership community, actually right now, we're reading Ryan Holiday's Stillness is the Key. Ah. So yeah, that's a real beautiful, you know, and it's it's exactly what it sounds like. And it, it, it unpacks it from a mind, body and uh, spirit perspective, but a super resource right there. And, uh, oh, thank you for that yeah. reminder, because I love Ryan Holiday. Uh, I've signed up uh, for... Actually, his daily dad email, which I I just view as daily parent uh, email, which is phenomenal. And you've reminded me, I have that book on my Kindle. And I think I read the first chapter a couple of years ago. So I need to go back and actually read that. So thank you for that. Pleasure, pleasure. And I just want to highlight too, just something you said that really resonated with me, that that what, um, what do you believe in? Or are you ready to push on that? Right. And then mm-hmm. layer that with the zero and 10. And uh, that's good. The ruckus maker needs to hear that. You can't be all things to all people. And if you're clear about what you stand for, people know, first of all, where you are, but it attracts the right people and repels the wrong one in my experience. Mm -hmm. So you might be dealing like, you know, with with, uh, fewer people that might feel scary and that sort of thing. But you have people who are all bought in, which is like the beautiful thing. So. Julie, regarding, you know, the, the, the new uh, project here in the second book, I think there's, there's like three truths and five decisions, and I'm sure we don't have time, you know, to go through all of them deeply, but let's whet the appetite of the ruckus maker listening and, 
And I think there's those, some of those things, right? Like it's ignore, ignore this at your own peril, you know, <laughs> sort of. So I'll just, I'll leave, I'll leave it that, that and pass you the mic. Sure. So the three truths that I mentioned, we're preparing our children for a noble future. Uh, there's much that we know uh, with regards to how we learn and develop as human beings that we need to incorporate um, in the schools. And it's way past time for systemic equity. So as a school leader, as you're making decisions, something as simple as the school schedule, <laughs> extended right. day or not, uh, ideally you're looking at that question through the intersection of those three lenses. Mm. That that's informing how you're approaching that and the decisions that you're making. Uh, and then I mentioned this before in the previous book, and it's likely that that'll bring it into the second one, which is. These are the big decisions uh, that I believe any school leader and school board uh, need to talk about and get clarity and alignment around. And some of these I pulled from one of my most formative grad courses at the Harvard Graduate School of Education with Dave Perkins. And the course was called Educating for the Unknown. And I still remember these. This is, gosh, that was 2005. So this is like 16 years later. Uh, What's worth learning? How was it best learned? How can we get it taught that way? And how do we know it has been learned? So those four questions beautifully encapsulate in plain English, curriculum, pedagogy, teacher development, and assessment. And I talk about those four questions or those four decisions uh, in the book. And the fifth one is, and how do I lead change? So given the answers to that, usually I say 9.9 times out of 10, the answers are, okay, these answers are very different to what's currently existing from a curriculum, pedagogical, you know, assessment, teacher, PD practices in, in my school or district. That being the case, how do I begin to lead this change? Uh, so we'll unpack those in the book. I should also say, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, uh, that I'm co-writing this book, uh, co-authoring with a wonderful woman called Julie Stern. Uh, Julie is the author of Learning That Transfers, plus a couple of additional books. And she is uh, an expert, plus a real spitfire on pedagogy and assessment so it's it's fun writing a book with another person compared to the experience of writing one before on my own so i'm learning a ton in this process as well you said it's fun what's fun about it well whenever you're again this this goes back to teamwork for so many organizations is always one-on-one equals minus three you know toxic Mm -hmm. relationships you know politics yada yada but when teamwork is, is working, it's phenomenal. You are better as a result of it. And Julie sparks ideas in me and I spark ideas in her. And it's, it's energizing. And, and I also, we're not there yet, but I know that when either of us hits a wall, there'll be somebody to pick up the phone and go, hey, <laughs> I've just written 2,000 words and none of them make sense. You know, could you take a read of this and tell me <laughs> your take and maybe give me some feedback that would be helpful? Uh, and, and, and that's just a, a more fun process for me. I think uh, I should explore co-authoring with someone. I've, I've written at least 60,000 words that don't make sense. So <laughs> <laughs> it would be super helpful. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's pause here just for a moment for a message from our sponsors. When we come back, I'd love to hear about some of the DNRs that do not resuscitate from uh, uh, this experience we've all been through and a second project you're working on. 
the frameworks, skills, and knowledge you need to drive change improvement in your learning community with Harvard's online certificate in school management and leadership, a joint collaboration between the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Harvard Business School. Connect and collaborate with fellow school leaders as you address your problems of practice in our online professional development program. Apply today at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. That's betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Better Leaders, Better Schools is brought to you by school leaders like Principal Gutierrez using TeachFX. Special populations benefit the most from verbally engaging in class, but get far fewer opportunities to do so than their peers, especially in virtual classes. TeachFX measures verbal engagement automatically in virtual or in-person classes to help schools and teachers address these issues of equity during COVID. Learn more and get a special offer from Better Leaders, Better Schools listeners at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. All right, and we're back with Julie Jungawala, founder of the Institute of the Future of Learning. And there's some things that we should we should let go of, right? Uh, some things we should not resuscitate from this experience that we've all been through together. And in your view, what are what are some of those things that educators and leaders should let go of? So I have a, <laughs> a couple of biased answers, and then I also think this is a great question for school leaders to ask their teachers as they come back, mm-hmm. as they come back in this next academic year, uh, and to ask the parents and to ask the students. Fascinating to ask students, what should we not resuscitate from February of 2020? From how you how you knew school back then, what should we not uh, resuscitate? This is very easy for me to say it is, it's going to take a while, uh, but I think it's in progress. I don't think we should resuscitate standardized testing. Colleges uh, parked it. I don't know how long they will park it or if they will bring that back next year. My hope is that there's enough of a wedge that's been inserted that we can start to think about an assess- assessment in very different ways. Organizations such as the Mastery Transcript Consortium are leading incredible work in this regard. You've got organizations like McKinsey, saying that, you know, we're not getting a diverse range of talent. And at this point, the path to ace those tests is so well-worn and so hot-housed, and you can chew yourself into oblivion and, you know, and get on the shortlist. Uh, they're now in conjunction with another party designing these immersive problem-based AI simulations. Hmm. So my hope is that there are enough external forcing functions that are going to encourage the education system to really get serious about leaving the standardized tests as they're currently constructed in the past. Yeah. I want to learn more. So, um, you know, I think just from what you were talking about there in the, the AI sort of simulated and 
immersive. Uh, it sounds like solving, you know, really interesting problems that tells you a lot more about uh, somebody's just everything, you know, with what the value that they can create. And uh, wouldn't a university or a, an employer or whatever be more interested in in that aspect of a kid versus that they figured out how to play the game, you know? Exactly. And it, it just seems like you wouldn't be able to fake that as much, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So very, very interesting. Cool. I actually took a note on that. I want to make a piece of content about it because that was just such a provocative idea. So thank you. And I, I know uh, a second project you're working on has to do with um, the reinvention mandate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess how society prepares us for these predetermined paths in a predictable world, but reality has changed. <laughs> so pro- <laughs> probably this predictable world or whatever, the predetermined paths maybe don't make so much sense these days. So yeah, take it from there. Like what's this project all about? Sure. So I come at education from a a different perspective for 20 plus years. I've worked as a leadership coach and also within small, medium, large organizations, uh, helping leaders lead change. And it was after a decade of that work that brought me to K through 12, because after a decade of that work, this theme kept coming up for me, which was that so much of what we're helping adults do uh, with one-on-one coaching or in these team uh, environments, these workshop environments, is essentially to unlearn what they learned through a standardized system of education. So fast forward another 10 or 15 years, I, I read so much in the whole talent development, performance development landscape. You're probably aware yourself, Danny, of all of the conversation around upskilling and reskilling and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Nowhere am I hearing the fact that we are, if we're serious about this, we're asking human beings to reinvent themselves. That's a very different narrative than you'll have multiple careers in your lifetime. That assumes that you can just slot into a box somewhere. Mm-hmm. Whereas we know that things are so uncertain and volatile, volatile and unpredictable that society sets us up that if we just check these boxes, we'll be okay. And there are a lot of young people out there who've checked the boxes and they're not okay. They find themselves on paths that I, you know, I, I didn't question this, but now I'm in it and in this job or in this relationship, I'm thinking, you know, really, is this what I really want? And, you know, there was a lot in the, the lean in movement around, you know, sort of essentially, you know, buck up and, and, and really, you know, lean into this. I'm hearing more and more people, young people in particular, saying, no, I'm leaning out. And I heard a speaker one time say, yeah, let, let's lean out and let these systems and structures fall, which is what they need to do. Mm-hmm. So in the middle of all of that, here we are as human beings with a mortgage to pay, rent check that needs at the end of the month, groceries. And, and it's such a seeing more and more and more of it, particularly with COVID, and you're probably seeing the statistics of people saying, uh, the vast majority of people, I don't know if I want to go back to that same job in that mm-hmm. same office. I don't know how to navigate my way to something else. And then you've got folks working two or three jobs just to get food on the table. And there's so much learned helplessness within the system. Uh, we want to take reinvention, this notion of reinvention off of the self-help section and put this into the core competency as a human being section that there are people who have reinvented themselves successfully over their lifetimes continue to do so. What can we learn from those people? Uh, what's similar and what's different? And how might we help each other 
through this uh, because it's only going to become ever more prevalent in the years to come. So in that project with my colleagues, uh, Jenny Stein and Janine Matho, we're interviewing a diverse range of folks and we're going to distill all of those findings and uh, write a book on what we've learned. Uh, we imagine there'll be some archetypes will emerge and then a really practical framework and set of tools that will help you uh, regardless of where you are on your reinvention journey. Yeah. Wow. How helpful, especially with uh, the way things just have changed. And, uh, you know, like, like you said, that you've, you're prepared through this system and then you're there and you're like questioning, is this what I really want or is this the relationship I want? And that's even if you're lucky, if you find yourself in a relationship or employed, right? There's a lot of mm-hmm. people who, using your words, check the boxes and they're unemployed, right? They didn't even, they can't pay the mortgage uh, or, or put food on the table and that kind of stuff. Uh, I know the research is early, but is, there, is there is there one idea you could offer the ruckus maker listening when it comes to reinvention that is just, uh, yeah, maybe highly leverageable or just something for them to, to think about? Sure. The biggest thing that's coming up for me right now is that nobody does this alone. You need a posse, a tribe, a crew, at least one other person. So if you're embarking on any sort of change, yes, nobody can do this work but you. But if you're surrounded by a group of like-minded people, it is incredibly powerful. So being very careful who you choose to share your ideas with, because some people can be toxic to your ideas. And some people can be like jet fuel in a really positive way. I know a lot of your work, Danny, is bringing like-minded people together. So uh, stick close to Danny is what I would say. And <laughs> the research bears that out. <laughs> that is very generous of you to say. My, my quick anecdote there is uh, I remember when I was launching what this is, and I had in my journal a plan of what it potentially could become and showing some of my inner circle at the time it will never work, right? Like that was the message majority of the time. Uh, and then I found a mastermind to join myself and there, I didn't have to convince them. And they're like, like you said, jet fuel, right? Like how are we going to make this work? And who, who do you need to surround yourself with to, to make it a reality as well? So it is, Brene Brown calls that the square squad, right? Like the one inch by one inch little um, piece of paper of like, who do I need to listen to? So uh, yeah, that's it. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that square squad before. I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's brilliant too, right? Because one inch by one inch, like you can't fit a lot of names there. So, mm-hmm. and especially like, you know, creating books like yourself. And we were, we were laughing about how many podcasts are out there. If I read all the negative reviews, you know, it's just like, you have to be careful about like what, what, you, mm-hmm. what inputs you are uh, open to. So anyways, Julie, I'd love to ask you if you could put a message on all school marquees around around the world for just a day, what would your message read? Two questions. What do you want? Why? I love that. I don't know that anybody's ever put questions on the marquee. So kudos to you. (laughs) I should have expected that you'd do something different. (laughs) Love it. Okay. Well, this is going to be really fun. Now let's talk about the school you build, right? You're not limited by any resources. The only limitation that exists is your imagination. So how, how would you build that dream school and what would be your top three priorities? So how I would build that school, my resources, I'm going beyond the time-space continuum here. So yeah. I would bring back Maria Montessori and Rudolf Steiner from the dead. I would organize a workshop for Maria Montessori, Rudolf Steiner, 
the founders of the Acton Academy, who I believe are still alive, and Jay-Z. And I would get these people in a room (laughs) and I would ask them (laughs) what makes for a dream school and why, and just see where that conversation goes. And then just make it a reality. And then make it a reality. (laughs) Make it a reality. I love how you pick the right people to get in the room uh, and to see where it goes. So wonderful. <laughs> well, well, Julie, we, we covered a lot of ground in this conversation. It was uh, just super enjoyable for me to be a part of. And of everything we talked about today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? I guess I'm loving that square squad. So leadership is an extraordinary, lonely endeavor oftentimes. And Going through the good times and the bad times, you need people that you can call up. It doesn't matter the time of day. They will be there for you and you need to make the call. So I would underscore what I've learned so far from those reinvention mandate interviews that nobody should do this work alone. And a square squat, write the name down and call them. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed.